This Washington Post Live podcast is supported by the Rockefeller Foundation and in partnership with the Pandemic Prevention Institute, which is working with global partners to build an early warning system for a pandemic-free future. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And today we're going to be talking about pandemic prevention, first from an international perspective. As my guests, I have Elhaj Asi, co-chair of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, a joint arm of the World Health Organization and World Bank. Also with us is Dr. Oliver Morgan, Director of the Health Emergency Information and Risk Assessment Department in the WHO's Health Emergencies Program. A warm welcome to you both. Thank you very much for having us. Mr. C, let's start with you. Uh, The Global Preparedness Monitoring Board recently released a report calling for a new global social contract to prevent and mitigate health emergencies. What are some of those solutions that you're proposing? Thank you very much. Uh, This report is the third in a series. So back in 2019, we released a report which we called the world at risk. And at the time we were already uh, warning you know, against a pandemic of uh, respiratory uh, pathogen, which is highly infectious that could really cripple the world. The world was not listening. Six months later, we got COVID. So later on, uh, we re- released another report which were called in world in disorder that was highlighting the fragmentation that we were seeing in the world, the difficulty to bring uh, really countries and nations around the table to get a consensus of what needs to be done so that we are all safe. Actions were not taken. This third report is not going to be another description of the situation. We know what needs to be done. We have analysis, we have data, we have everything that we need to take action. Yet world leaders have shied away from taking the bold steps that are needed to end this pandemic and prepare for the next one. That is why in our annual report, we outlined five simple steps to take over the next weeks, to move from words to action and create a very strong and resilient health emergency ecosystem. And let me run you through those five steps very quickly. First, Leaders must recognize the need for an international agreement on pandemic preparedness and response. The special session of the World Health Assembly later this month provide an ideal opportunity to come together and agree on a process to at least begin such negotiations. Second, leaders must agree to convene a summit of heads of states and government on pandemic preparedness and response. This will demonstrate the highest level of political leadership. Indeed, we live in a shared world with shared risk and shared responsibilities, but we don't seem you know, to bring you know, all those different parts together for the kind of a response that will be sustainable. Third, we must strengthen the WHO so that it has greater resources, authority and accountability and remains at the heart of the global health emergency ecosystem. Fourth, we would like to see leaders establish a collective financing mechanism for pandemic preparedness and response through a financial intermediary fund 
that will ensure that all that all financing is sustainable, predictable, equitable, and I stress equitable, flexible, and scalable. Finally, leaders must strengthen mutual accountability and monitoring capabilities by developing an end-to-end -end mechanism to share research and data and ensure equitable access you know, on common goods. None of these recommendations are new, frankly. We already have the roadmap for what needs to be done. What we need now is to focus our effort on turning these words you know, to action, a world that is getting more than equal, more, more unequal than ever before, a world that is divided between the haves and the have-nots. And at the same time, we all agree and repeat the same motto, none of us is safe until we all are. So action is needed now and urgently because the window of opportunity is really closing. Over. Dr. Morgan, let's go to you. The World Health Organization opened a pandemic intelligence hub that looks out for future threats. What's happening there? Can you share uh, more with us about that? And are you investigating emerging threats? Yeah, this is a really very exciting initiative and it's really a critical uh, step in us being better prepared for future threats. Uh, there have been many instances, uh, I think, where we could have done a better job at not just detecting uh, risks and threats, but understanding those uh, sooner. At the moment, with our current capabilities at WHO, we detect about four and a half thousand signals every month of pandemic and epidemic potential events. And we conduct about 300 investigations every single month into those uh, events to understand them better. And each year we're getting uh, more and more able to detect events quite quickly, but where we still have a lot of challenges is really understanding uh, the full dimensions of those risks. And some of the problems that we often face is understanding the context in which health events are happening. So to really understand maybe what the risk of spread might be, uh, what is driving maybe potential spread of different diseases, or maybe what effective control measures are. So one of the, the areas that we're focusing on with our uh, pandemic uh, intelligence hub, which has been newly established, is really to strengthen those capacities, both the WHO, but critically with many different partners as well. Firstly, working with countries so that they too have those capabilities to not only detect events quickly, but also to share information about those events as fast as possible. But interestingly, there are also many other actors and other stakeholders that play a vital role in the pandemic and epidemic intelligence. Increasingly, non-governmental organizations and academic institutions are also sharing quite uh, valuable information for us to understand what's going on as quickly as possible. So one of the challenges that we face as a global public health community is not always the lack of information, but sometimes so much information uh, that comes to us quickly that we uh, don't have good tools or approaches to put together to understand how that risk is evolving. And these are some of the problems uh, and challenges that we'll be focusing on in the new WHO hub for pandemic and epidemic intelligence. As you've both noted, uh, international cooperation is key in preventing a global pandemic. Uh, Dr. C, what were some of the biggest shortcomings on that front with COVID-19? The biggest shortcomings you know, that we've seen you know, could be highlighted through the following points. One, 
action was not always, you know, guided by science. You know, political uh, leadership, you know, reacted and not responded effectively by holding health infrastructures or health tools, by putting uh, restrictions you know, on exports, by not sharing commodities, by developing what is you know, called you know, today uh, vaccine or commodities nationalism. Well, it is absolutely fine that every country take care of its citizens. And we working in the international uh, arena do care about everybody, people in rich countries and people in poorer countries too. But there is no need, you know, to have vaccines, you know, that could cover 150% of your population on the one hand and on the other hand, have countries that could hardly cover 5% of their population in a pandemic situation. So we did not have, you know, this uh, global leadership and then that platform that is needed, you know, so that we can share, we can work together, you know, we can partner, you know, not only for charity or for generosity, but you know, for real public health measures that are being guided by data, guided by science, and then doing the right thing for everybody. And that is the reason why we believe that it should be elevated you know, at the political level. We have the science, we hear the activists talking, we are lacking the political leadership, and that's where we are concentrating. We must concentrate our effort you know, to complement the puzzle. You mentioned uh, vaccine, sharing vaccines, and I want to return to that topic in a minute. But first, a question to you, Dr. Morgan. The WHO says more data are being collected than ever before when it comes to potential new variants of COVID-19. But we know global databases are rarely streamlined to allow for easy international comparison. How are you working on that problem? Yeah, this is a very dynamic space and actually a very exciting time in terms of uh, science and public health. We've seen a huge increase in the amounts of genomic sequencing taking place around the world really since the beginning of this year when uh, when new SARS-CoV-2 variants were, were identified that became a real concern. And this is really pointing to the future direction of global public health and global public collaboration, public health collaboration in science. We've seen uh, many countries able to now sequence uh, different uh, di the different genomes uh, for SARS-CoV-2 viruses and share them rapidly into public data sets. But interestingly, there are a few challenges that we're going to have to focus on so that these technologies and this information can really help us globally. One of them uh, is to really connect the information about what is happening as the virus evolves with what is happening in the population health and linking those two so that we understand that as the virus changes, we see uh, potential changes in how uh, disease is spreading, for example, or how severe disease might, uh, how severe the disease might be. But then there's also some other challenges in terms of the, just the infrastructure that's required for us to do this. And even sharing the genomic data into the databases and uploading that information requires strong internet con connectivity which in many places uh, can be a barrier to sharing. So we really have to look at a whole range of challenges uh, for in the future, but I think we're off to a very positive start here. And Mr. C, we've uh, seen a lot of challenges in terms of 
uh, countries uh, being held accountable to the WHO in reporting viruses. Uh, we've seen this with China and problems with, with a lack of reporting. How do we improve that situation so that in the future we can ensure that member countries are being forthright about viruses that are originating in their, in their countries? Countries you know, should uh, deliver on the commitments they make. So that is really the principle of uh, international law, international relations. When we talk about WHO, it is not only the technical secretariat in Geneva, it is not only the technical organization, it is also the member states that govern WHO and that are members of WHO. They are governed you know, by the rules that they have established themselves, that they have set for, the, for themselves, and then they should and they must respect those rules and regulations that are agreed upon. So the, the weakness you know, in international relations is you know, the lack of mechanism to enforce you know, countries you know, do the needful, which is not based only on their bona fide and also and their good standing among peers to respect the commitments you know, that they are making. And I think there is a long way to go there you know, for the respect of international health regulations. There is a long way to go there for reporting cases on time. There is a long way to go there in terms of also funding adequately the organization that they have established. And there is a long way still, you know, to come together and agree you know, on the guidance, you know, that have been given both on science and data and not only for on populism and political uh, egoism, I would like to say, I would say. So I think there is a real need there for great accountability and that's why we are all crying for the political leadership to make it happen. Mr. C, I want to return to your comments about the sh vaccine shortages around the country. And of course, here in the US, we're seeing uh, in booster shots being distributed widely. And yet many countries, poor countries around the world have yes, yet to receive their first vaccine doses. Can you give us your take on that? Are wealthy countries doing enough to help lower income countries access those vaccines? I think it's shameful, simply put, you know that uh, we have nowadays more people receiving their third shot in the rich world than people receiving their first one in low and middle income countries. And I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding here that global solidarity is founded on generosity and not justice, on goodwill and aid rather than equity and common interest. It is not simply a matter of ensuring vaccine equity, as important as it is, it is also ensuring that low and middle income countries have equal access to preventative measures like PPEs and treatments, you know, like oxygen. And if we don't do that, the motto that we keep on all repeating, namely, none of us is safe until we all are, will not have, you know, any meaning. What can deportal nectar situation, active citizenship, political leadership and that is the reason why we are really hoping you know that you know leaders will emerge and then do the right thing and i mean leaders in all countries in rich and poor countries you know to focus on global health and make the necessary investment and also the global solidarity that is required for the sake of equity and the safety for everybody Dr. Morgan, officials at the WHO last week said Europe is seeing a 50% jump in coronavirus cases uh, despite an ample supply of vaccines. 
uh, based on the data you have in the modeling, what do you think this means for Europe and the world at large this winter? Well, I think it's very clear, uh, firstly, that uh, this indicates that the pandemic is far from over. And uh, I think there was a moment, or at least a period over the summer, at least in Europe, where there was a lot of optimism that uh, vaccines were going to uh, be the solution by themselves. But I think it's very clear uh, what, is, what we're seeing in uh, across the European countries is that vaccines are only a component of the solution for us to have uh, maintain control of the transmission of COVID-19. Uh, vaccines in conjunction or in, uh, with other public health uh, and, and social measures and uh, disease control measures are uh, going to be very important as we go into the into the through the winter season. And it's really critical that all the European countries really work very hard to keep the number of new cases down as low as possible so that uh, they avoid uh, a rapid escalation through the winter, which might also coincide with the circulation of other respiratory pathogens such as influenza, which would, would be a very serious problem for countries to experience uh, an increase in both of those diseases at the same time. And I think for all countries around the world, this is uh, an, again a reiteration of what WHO has been saying for a long time, which is that uh, even where vaccines uh, have been rolled out and are available, other public health and social measures used to reduce transmission continue to be important. Uh, and we are almost out of time, unfortunately, but I do want to finish with uh, what has become a bit of a sticky question, and that is about the origins of the virus. And I know that WHO sent a team to China last spring. They weren't able to come back with any conclusions. And now we've seen this new advisory body of scientists to explore the origins. But Dr. Morgan, do you do you have any confidence that we will discover the origins, especially considering this new committee doesn't actually have the power to go back into China and take another look? So the new committee has really been established uh, looking forwards uh, in particular so that we have mechanisms in place, uh, certainly for future events uh, where it's very uh, critical to understand uh, where the origins of uh, new events happen. And uh, as I mentioned earlier on in the interview, we do see quite a lot of signals of new events happening every month. And so having that mechanism in place is really going to be very helpful. I think for uh, for COVID-19, I think uh, we're still obviously learning a lot about the virus. Uh, I think um, there's still more information that uh, we need to understand. Um, and I think at the moment, uh, the main focus at the, uh, that we have, um, especially as we go through the winter period in the Northern Hemisphere, is to maintain good control. And as Dr. C mentioned, is to ensure that we have a rollout of vaccine across the world. And uh, WHO has recommended that we aim to have a 40% coverage in all countries by the end of the year. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. It looks like we lost Mr. Elhaj Asi, but thanks to him for joining us. And Dr. Oliver Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today as well. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for having me. To our audience, I will be back in just a few minutes with our next guests. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University, and today we're talking about pandemic preparedness. We seem to have ignored past warnings about pathogens like Zika, Ebola, and H1N1, but COVID has really raised the stakes, and for the first time, the whole world is demanding we do better in our pandemic preparedness and prevention. To talk about this momentum-building moment and new tools and technologies developed during the pandemic to help us track and detect emerging pathogens, I'm joined by Rick Bright. He's the Senior Vice President of Pandemic Preparedness Response and the CEO of the Pandemic Prevention Institute at the Rockefeller Foundation. Rick, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Elise. Well, well, let's start by talking about a global warning system. I mean, it's not new, it's been proposed for years, but how did working on this current COVID-19 response ultimately lay the foundation for a future warning system? And, and what does it look like? Well, Elise is very clear we missed the signal. The world missed the signal. Despite okay. years and decades of preparation, investment planning, um, exercising, uh, global collaborations and treaties and discussions, we missed the signal. So we have to ask ourselves why. Why would we miss something so important that it ended up being so devastating to society in so many, so many ways? And what can we do better to make sure that we never ever have to experience this type of pandemic again. What we have in place now, because of what you just said, um, the urgency, the political will, the funding, the collaboration, everyone is lined up to do something and something different and something better to make sure we never again face a pandemic. But we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we need to do? And we've launched the Pandemic Prevention Institute at the Rockefeller Foundation to focus on those signals. Are there better signals that we can identify? Are there better, better things that we can track and trace and monitor on an ongoing daily basis that will add to those traditional epidemiological um, um, surveillance tools and, and signals that we, we trusted in the past, but again, missed this pandemic? In addition to bringing together these different types of data to strengthen our ability to see signals, We've learned that um, you know, most of the information that we have has been sequestered or controlled or monitored or managed by governments, um, by large entities or institutions. And most of the people who could respond to such signals did not have access to the information. So in addition to making and getting smarter signals, we have to use modern day analytics to translate that into action that everyone can understand so everyone can make sure that we don't have another pandemic. Right, well, at Rockefeller, so this is a non-governmental non independent effort, but you and I have talked about the importance of having all the voices at the table, governments, the private sector, the international development community and building um, this successful global early warning system. It's critical. I mean, no one entity can do this. And, and again, we saw in this last pandemic the, the challenge and the consequence of isolation, of fragmentation, of nationalism. And we learned painfully so the importance of collaboration and sharing of information and trusting each other with transparency so we can have more information to respond faster. So not only do we need to bring together different sectors such as the private, the public, the academic, the philanthropic, 
we have to also make sure that we're bringing together the world and making sure that this is an equitable approach, that someone in a remote area of, of Africa has the same access and information that someone in um, the United States or in Europe somewhere along the way. We have to make sure that the tools that we use to interpret this information and guide us for those public health response activities is they're suitable for everyone regardless of where you are in the world. So it's about setting a table, but it's about bringing everyone to the table around the world in an equitable manner to be able to respond. Well, okay, so that's challenging in itself, if not impossible, but without political will, you know, trust, collaboration, um, it's it's gonna be, you know, a near impossible feat. So talk about the political barriers and even the practical barriers to preventing another pandemic from happening? Well, the some of the biggest challenges, at least, are just building trust. Um, so politically, um, a lot of nations um, work together, but many nations still don't. Um, we have gone through a, a time, a period in the last several years where trust has been eroded from nation to nation, and we have to rebuild that trust. Uh, we've gone through a period of time where um, government and science have been at odds, politics and science. And so we have to re reconnect those areas. We have to let science lead in these areas but make sure it's informing the best government policies. And so we have to go into that in a very cognitive way to make sure that what we build augments and supports governments but we also have a federated approach so individuals and scientists around the world can connect, communicate, share information to build a trust architecture on top of that data architecture. So if we had two or three things we needed to do to prevent another pandemic from happening right now, what would they be? Well, number one, we have to collaborate. We have to collaborate in new intentional ways to bring together new science, new perspective, new approaches, to what we know as a traditional public health space. Number two is really important. These are a high level, um, but really important to build trust. We build trust by ensuring there's transparency and access to everyone at the same time, focusing intentionally on equity to make sure everyone around the world has the same information, because that's how we're going to be able to share data and information quickly. And number three, we need to modernize our approach to 21st century public health. We need to bring 21st century tools to the public health arena to make sure that we can get in front of and stop a pandemic before it emerges. Well, I mean, as you've said, you know, changing information is key. The information keeps changing. The early warning system, um, making it sure it's not just government control, but community awareness, communicating that information in a way that people can understand to help them establish that personal responsibility and action to take care of their families and communities is really gonna be key. Rick Bright, Senior Vice President of Pandemic Preparedness and CEO of the Pandemic Prevention Institute at Rockefeller Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Elise. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and up next, we're going to be looking at the state of Wisconsin and how researchers there have been tracking the spread of the coronavirus. Joining me are Katerina Grande, who leads the COVID-19 data team, 
for Public Health in Madison and Dade County, and Dr. David O'Connor, a professor and researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks Thank for having us. David, let's start with you. Throughout the pandemic, I know you've been looking at the spread of COVID-19 in counties in Wisconsin, and you do this through genetic sequencing of the virus. I, I think this is something people don't really understand. So can you sort of spell it out for us and how it has helped you understand patterns of the virus and how it mutates? Sure, so the virus has about 30,000 genetic letters, and most of these are identical between everyone who's infected but the small differences in the virus act as fingerprints that we can use to understand how the virus is moving through time and space. So if two people have identical sequences at all 30,000 of those letters, then it's likely that one infected the other or that they shared a common source of infection. If uh, the viruses are uh, different by 10 or 20 of those letters, then it's likely that uh, those individuals were infected from different sources. It seems very simple, but it becomes a very powerful tool for doing genetic detective work to see how the viruses uh, are spreading within communities and within settings like schools or hospitals or sports teams. And when did you first start sequencing COVID cases? Well, in Dane County, where we're located, we had the 12th case of COVID in the United States back in late January 2020, and we actually began sequencing with that first case um, in mid-February 2020. And we then continued uh, to have a really aggressive sequencing campaign uh, from then onward. Kat, I know that you're the data lead for the Madison and Dade County COVID-19 dashboard. How are you using that dashboard to track virus transmission? Yeah, so our dashboard, we gather data from a variety of sources. So we have contact tracing data. We have this genetic data that Dave was talking about, data with hospitalizations and the immunization registry. And we put it all together to try to create a comprehensive data picture that's um, not only understandable to epidemiologists, but to community members and others who are making decisions based on these data. So, um, for example, the information that we get from our university partners with Dave's team is that if we're aware that a particular cluster has um, a, a new variant, then we can quickly translate that data into action. We can make different recommendations on the ground as to what that site could do differently. We can message broadly to the community that we've detected this new variant here and that we may need to tweak some of our public health policies or actions to respond. And David, you've talked about what you've been doing there in Wisconsin with the sequencing, but how could this sequencing data model be used nationally? Yeah, so I mean, I think as uh, Dr. Bright was saying right before the segment, an early warning system is gonna be key. The ability to understand when there is a new variant in your community will only come if you have spotlights um, across the country and across the world where you can see uh, when a new variant has emerged or when a new variant has arisen uh, and when it is starting to spread in your community. So we need uh, both an expansion of the existing types of genomic sequencing tools that um, have really uh, come to the forefront during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we need to develop new tools. So for example, we're working with CAT and Public Health Madison uh, and the Rockefeller 
uh, foundation to uh, explore the use of air samplers to sequence viruses, with the idea being that if you're in an airport or a school, instead of having to sequence virus out of each person who's in uh, coming through the airport or the school, you could sample the air and then determine what sequences are present so that you can have uh, visibility over a larger number of individuals uh, than you could ever achieve by sampling people one at a time. I'd like to direct an audience question to Kat, uh, and this is from Mark Weiler in Alabama, and his question is, what is the best way to streamline raw data collected in a way that is helpful for preventing or preparing for the next pandemic? Kat, how would you answer that question? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we heard a lot from our previous um, speakers about um, data infrastructure and how that is a way that we must adapt in order to prepare for the next pandemic. Um, in public health, we're still operating a lot on pretty old da data systems. So modernizing, which we're actively working on, is a, uh, a step in that direction. And it's um, about having sort of different paradigms as to how we share data, right? Um, you know, it's, it's common for people to be very siloed in different data sectors and um, for immunization data to talk to case data, for example, can often uh, take a lot of time and coordination. So. I think shifting to a place where um, we all see our different roles in presenting a comprehensive data picture and um, being creative about data sharing so that the community has access to the data that it needs to make decisions. Well, and David, I want to ask you about schools because, of course, there's been so much debate around schools and what mitigation tactics should be used. But what have you found in your research about how the virus spread in schools? Well, I, at first, I think that if um, we're never going to be able to fully um, prevent all pandemics. And so leveling with people and saying that nature is uncontrollable, saying that you're going to prevent pandemics is like saying you're going to prevent hurricanes. It's just simply not going to happen. What you can do is you can mitigate the impact of them, just like uh, better building codes can mitigate the impact of hurricanes. Um, better response plans, better early surveillance systems can mitigate the impact of pandemics that we have in the future. And one that we're going to have to really think hard about is how to avoid the educational disruption uh, that occurred in 2020 and 2021 across uh, much of the United States and other parts of the world, uh, where we simply were not equipped to um, provide the sort of support to schools that was necessary uh, to both um, allow schools to be uh, held uh, safely uh, and to recognize the roles that schools will play in the spread of virus into the broader community. Um, and so we've been very involved in uh, trying to bring uh, point of care antigen testing into schools. And so we developed flowcharts uh, in collaboration with Kat and her team in our local public health department on how those tests uh, should be used nearly uh, about a year ago now. Um, and we continue to work really closely with schools uh, to figure out how they can try to weather the storm, uh, how they can prepare for the winter here in the northern US where we're going to have uh, snow and cold and people are going to be inside. Um, we may have uh, a winter where um, we have uh, the complexities of, of COVID uh, and influenza. 
um, all both causing school absences. And so figuring out how schools can best respond to that is, is going to be important. And I think this is a place where early surveillance systems uh, could be focused, where if you basically um, take schools as a sentinel site uh, that is broadly representative of the communities in which they're located, um, you can learn a lot about how and where viruses are spreading in your communities. And I would argue that if we had had that back at the beginning of 2020, we would have had a lot better visibility into the early spread of COVID, even though school-age children themselves uh, did not get sick. We could have learned a lot about the virus if we had focused our attention on how it was spreading within and among schools and the communities where they're located. But to press into that question a little more, did you find spread within the schools? Because I know that there has been debate over when you've seen some of these cases among children or, or teachers specifically, more, more often, as you note, um, uh, whether those were derived within the school building or whether the, those were more commonly derived in the community. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, here in, in, in Dane County, we have um, had a mask mandate through the, this academic year, uh, and schools actually enforce uh, mask mandates. Teachers have the ability to tell you when you can go to the bathroom. They certainly can tell you that you have to wear a mask. And uh, what we have seen is that in places where you have effective other strategies, um, you, you really don't see very much transmission. Uh, early in the pandemic, we showed that in hospitals, uh, nurses who were wearing effective uh, uh, PPE were often uh, getting infected in the communities, not from their patients. And similarly, while there is undoubtedly some transmission that happens in the schools, I think that um, with a multi-layered uh, prevention strategy, the amount of transmission that happens in the school is less than in the broader community. And I think Kat and her data team have some really elegant data to that effect. Yes, and Kat, based on these results, uh, how did the county develop guidance around antigen testing in schools, mitigation strategies, and later air surveillance? Yeah, so we're again really lucky to have academic partners on this. This is um, things like air surveillance and other innovative strategies are sort of above and beyond what governmental public health is uh, has the capacity to do. So I think we're still learning a lot about what um, the air surveillance will result in. For um, antigen testing, really important, again, to um, have testing available as a, one of the layered mitigation strategies. So um, the rapid testing in partnership with masking, um, with vaccination and doing everything we can to get the younger age groups vaccinated, along with teachers and care providers. Um, it's part of a critical package of interventions that we've been pursuing and um, and doing in our county. And Kat, I know you and David authored a study in July showing vaccinated and unvac unvaccinated people had similar viral loads in communities with high prevalence of COVID. And I think that finding would surprise most people because the assumption, at least before Delta, had been that you wouldn't be spreading the virus as much if you were vaccinated. So can you explain those findings a little bit more for us? Sure. So, um, and there's been a lot of science that has come since then. So while we did find and studies since us have found that viral loads look similar among vaccinated and unvaccinated. Um, we also know that viral loads decrease faster among those who are vaccinated. And people who are vaccinated are less likely to get COVID in the first place. So there are a lot of additional um, pieces of information that have 
um, enhanced the findings of our study um, and understanding of it. But um, it, it's an important finding and it, and it was unexpected and it did lead to us to take action at a county level um, pretty rapidly. We were uh, having these findings at the same time that CDC was um, also finding this on the East Coast. So we, at that moment, didn't have a mask mandate. These findings convinced us that um, until we know a little bit more, it's time to start masking up again, even if you're vaccinated. So that's just an example of how we translate data to action rapidly. And what was that like when, you know, you were realizing that the Delta variant was behaving a little bit differently? I just remember back, you know, we had that point in June where we felt like we were moving past the pandemic and then there was the Delta wave. Uh, how did your area respond to that? Oh, I mean, it was a little heartbreaking for sure. It was um, just, uh, we we really thought that there was a clear way forward and every single moment in the pandemic where we thought, okay, clarity is here now, um, another wild curveball. So yeah, it was a, an important finding, but definitely disappointing at a personal level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I also wanna ask, what's your assessment now of where we are in the pandemic and what mitigation measures you see particularly in your area through the winter? We are, and always have been since it came online, um, vaccination focused. It's it's our our best intervention. We're, we're focused on, um, of course, different layers such as masking, but vaccination is um, what is is still going to pave a way forward. And we have a very high vaccination rate here. We're very lucky. Um, we know with waning immunity, boosters are super important. So that's what we're also focused a lot on. Um, that 5 to 11 age group we think is going to make a, a big difference in sort of um, viral dynamics in our community even more so. So we are, we are all about vaccination. David, I want to ask you a, a broad question that I like to, to ask a lot of people because everyone has a slightly different take. But what do you think the next pandemic looks like? And where is the U.S.? How would you rank the U.S. in terms of preparation level for it? Well, I mean, I think we need to recognize that we're um, coexisting with infectious diseases. We always have and we always will, and that's not going to change. Um, we still have globally uh, about a million and a half people who get infected with HIV each year. Uh, we had more dengue cases in the Americas in 2019 uh, than ever before, though uh, we've made some great advances in, in limiting how, how many severe dengue cases we have. Um, there's been uh, Ebola in West Africa. There's been the 2009 H1N1 influenza. And all of these, and you could go through a list uh, as long as your arm, uh, point to the fact that we and uh, our uh, natural uh, worlds around us are, you know, co are coexisting. And so we need to understand that we can build better um, mitigation strategies. We should learn a lot from the epidemic here uh, so that we have more robust systems the next time we have a major respiratory pathogen. Just like after Zika, we should have more robust systems for vector control, for looking at mosquitoes and how, um, how we can control mosquito-borne illnesses. And so I think when we think about what comes next, 
making sure that we have really tight integration between the different types of stakeholders, companies that can make diagnostic tests and vaccines, academic labs like mine that um, really try to explore innovative technologies, public health at the local, state, and national and global level uh, to make sure that those uh, new technologies are translated into action. Figuring out how to do all those things actually doesn't require a pandemic and it would probably work uh, better even if there wasn't a pandemic. Um, but we need to realize that this is going to be um, like climate change, a defining, um, a defining type of challenge that we are going to confront in a globalized world in the 21st century and we need to prepare accordingly. Well, and you mentioned uh, other diseases uh, that we need to be paying attention to and how can sequencing be applied to other viruses like influenza? Sure. So the same technologies that we use to sequence uh, COVID can be used to sequence any different kind of virus. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been working on here just in the last couple of weeks and that we're moving more into is looking for 40 different respiratory pathogens at once when we're looking at these air samples, not just looking at SARS-CoV-2, but looking at a whole uh, plethora of other um, of other pathogens and um, figuring out how we can use sequencing, how we can deploy them, uh, deploy it both within the U.S. to places that don't have um, great sequencing capacity. It's not actually the technology that's limiting, it's the human capital. It's getting people trained, it's having a next generation workforce uh, that's familiar working with the science and the big amounts of data that it generates and then making sure that that sort of workforce is available around the world so that we have uh, bright lights on um, all of the different parts of the world where um, you know the next viruses could emerge so that we get an er as early a warning as possible about a problem so that we can try to stamp it out. So it's sort of like a forest fire. When it's an ember, it's easy to put out. Once the forest is on fire, it becomes really, really difficult. And it doesn't take very long for an ember to become a forest fire. Well, we're almost out of time, but I want to toss a final question to you, Kat. Uh, are we nearing the end of the COVID-19 pandemic? We are fortunately seeing cases and deaths finally go down after the Delta surge uh, and more vaccines, of course, be becoming more available to kids. Uh, but what's what's your take on that? Are, are, can we see blue skies ahead? Yeah, I feel like I've, um, you know, tried to have a rosy outlook at that question during different moments of the pandemic and then something else happened, something else emerged. So always hesitant to say like, this is it, this is the moment. Um, but I do think that with vaccination coverage increasing, with boosters being available, with the young kids having approval to be vaccinated. I mean, we do have more tools than we did. So, um, you know, I think we're in this place where we're, we're really learning what it looks like to live with COVID in a different way, but with a lot of tools at our disposal, which is promising. Well, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Kat Grande and David O'Connor, appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.